you guys, I know it has been a hot minute since I actually have been releasing any new episodes of The Story is Nuts. And I'm so thrilled to say that I am back, ready to go again and give you some more crazy true crime stories with a twist, of course. And you know what? I want to thank you all for being patient with me and allowing me to do some of the things that I needed to get done before uh, we came back to the show. So thank you so much for being patient. I'm looking forward to releasing all new episodes every single week for you. And I do want to say at the top of today's show, I have a little bit of cold or something going on. So you might notice, maybe you maybe you didn't even notice, but you know, there's something going on with my voice. It's a little bit different today and that's what that is. And then also, um, recently I was honored to be a guest on my good friend David Keck's podcast. It's called The True Crime Journals. And his co-host was actually um, gone with maternity leave and I stepped in for a few episodes. And so I was able to do that with him and it was super duper fun. And if you haven't checked out his podcast, The True Crime Journals, please go check it out. Especially the ones that I, you know, co-hosted, right? Of course. Of course you were going to do that. Also, just to let you know, um, there might be something in the works for the future, but I am not going to say anything else about that. I would prefer to get on with today's show. Seventeen-year-old Carla Walker was blonde and popular, and she was looking forward to going to college and maybe starting a life with her boyfriend, Rodney McCoy, the Western Hills Cougars star quarterback. But the night of February 16th, 1974, would be the beginning of an unimaginable nightmare for not only Rodney, but for also Carla's family. When Carla was abducted out of a bowling alley parking lot, all while her boyfriend Rodney sat helpless. Carla's body would be discovered days later, but this case would take another 46 years before anyone had an answer to the question, who killed Carla Walker? Hi, I'm your host, Missy, and I'm about to take you on a wild ride. Stories with plot twists, shocking endings, and unbelievable truths. Trust me when I tell you, that this story is nuts. February 16th, 1974, was the Valentine's Day dance for Western Hills High School, a high school located in Fort Worth, Texas. Carla Walker, the popular high school cheerleader, would go to the dance with her boyfriend Rodney McCoy, the star quarterback of the football team. After the dance, Carla and Rodney would have a few beers and smoke a little weed with some friends. And then after leaving their friends, Carla and Rodney would stop off at the local bowling alley, so that Carla could use the restroom. After she returned to the car, her and Rodney would begin kissing. Carla would lean up against the passenger side door and use her purse as a pillow for her head. 
It was then that the passenger door would swing open, and as Carla began to fall out of the car, Rodney would reach for her. But before he could do anything else, he began to get beat over the head with the butt of a pistol. Carla would cry out to the stranger attacking Rodney to stop hitting him. And Rodney couldn't do anything at this point, blood flowing into his eyes from his head wounds. It was then that the stranger pointed the gun into Rodney's face and pulled the trigger several times. But the gun never fired. In an attempt to save her boyfriend, she told the strange man that she would go with him and pled with him to stop attacking Rodney. Before Rodney blacked out from being hit multiple times over the head, Carla would tell him to go get her dad. By the time Rodney reopened his eyes, Carla was gone. He would speed to Carla's parents' house and bang on their front door at around 1 a.m. He was in a complete panic and told them that their daughter had been taken. Carla's father, Leighton, would grab his own pistol and rush to the bowling alley parking lot, but it was too late. Carla Walker had been abducted. When police arrived on the scene, the only thing that they found was Carla's purse and a clip from a semi-automatic pistol. The clip had more than likely fallen out of the gun as Rodney was being attacked, and possibly this was the only reason that the gun never fired and the only reason that Rodney actually survived the attack. Rodney remembered the strange man being about 5'11", with short, wavy hair and a Texas drawl. He was also wearing a shiny green vest. And during a hypnosis session later on, Rodney would also remember the man wearing a brown or tan cowboy hat. But anything else about the man was fuzzy, and Rodney had no idea who had taken Carla or why. Police would continue to search into the morning hours, but they would find nothing else. Three days later, on February 20th, 1974, two police officers who had been out looking for Carla were driving along a remote two-lane road near Benbrook Lake, which was about five miles south of the bowling alley. One of the officers decided to stop and search a culvert in this location. Now, a culvert, if you don't know, is a concrete tunnel that is built to let water flow beneath the road. Here in this culvert, still in the blue dress that she had worn to the Valentine's Day dance, was Carla Walker. Carla had sustained several bruises to her face and neck, and she had been strangled by the killer's bare hands. Carla's bra had been pushed up, and the pantyhose that she had been wearing were located at the front of the culvert. An autopsy report would show that although her cause of death was strangulation, Carla had also been beaten, sexually assaulted, and tortured for a few days before she died. A toxicology report also indicated that Carla had been injected with morphine, which was strange at the time since morphine wasn't really a street drug. This led investigators to believe that perhaps the suspect had some sort of medical or vet training. No fingerprints were found on Carla's body nor on her dress, and despite the fact that some body fluid was found on Carla, in 1974, technology was nowhere near being able to identify a person based off of their body fluid. So the sample was collected and saved, but there was nothing that they could do with that DNA. Also, despite there being a task force set up, as well as multiple tips coming into the station, 
Carla's case was at a standstill. Detectives did notice something, however. Just a year prior, on February 7, 1973, a young woman named Becky Martin was leaving her night class at a local Fort Worth college when she failed to return home. Becky's severely decomposed body was found in a culvert outside of town seven weeks later. Her cause of death could not be determined, and medical examiners claimed she could have died from either strangulation or being shot or even being stabbed. Her case had gone cold by the time of Carla's murder, and investigators wondered if there could be a pattern. Was there a serial killer in their midst? Though there wasn't any evidence in the case of who killed Carla, there were a few suspects. The magazine clip that police had found in the parking lot of the bowling alley belonged to a Bruger 22 handgun, a gun in which a couple dozen people in the area owned, and investigators would set out to interview each one of them. Police even gave polygraphs to some of the people who had the same gun. However, all of those questioned and later polygraphed all passed the test. But police also had several other suspects they felt could have been responsible for Carla's murder. One of the major suspects was a 22-year-old man named Tommy Ray Neeland, who had already murdered at least two other people, and police were suspecting he could be guilty of more. So Carla's boyfriend, Rodney, was actually able to pick Tommy out of a police lineup. But once they gave Tommy a polygraph, and the polygraph was actually used to try to prove that he killed Carla, he failed it. And so they were able to actually dismiss him as a suspect. Tommy Ray Nealon was convicted and charged in the murder of two teens in the area and was sentenced to two life sentences. However... He was paroled in 1987 after only serving 13 years. And then there was Jimmy Dean Sasser. Jimmy Dean Sasser actually walked into the police station a few years later and confessed to the murder of Carla. However, once police began to speak with him, they began to question whether or not what he was saying was actually true. Jimmy would later recant his statement to police and be released. According to sources, Jimmy Dean Sasser allegedly liked to make false confessions to crimes he did not commit. Now, Carla's father, Layton, never gave up on trying to find out what happened to his daughter. He continued to chase every lead that came into the Walker household and wrote down all of the names and addresses of potential suspects, keeping them set inside just in case. Jim... Carla's younger brother, who was 12 at the time of his sister's death, also wanted to find Carla's killer. And when he turned 16, he too would begin trying to find out who murdered his sister. Leighton Walker would pass away in 1987, and Carla's mother, Doris, would pass away in 2015. Jim Walker would move into his parents' home where he would stay. Quote, just in case someone ever showed up to confess to the murder of his sister. Jim refused to give up on Carla, and he continued to call the Fort Worth Police Department for years, hoping for news on any developments that might come from this case. In 2018, Jim finally reached a detective named Leah Walker, no relation to him, actually, and she was new on the cold case unit. It was her first time hearing about the case, and she was ready to get to work. 
Unfortunately, Leah could not seriously investigate the case until about 2019. In April of 2019, police released a letter that had actually been sent anonymously to the police department back in 1974. Now, the letter has a name redacted at the top, but I'm going to read to you what it says. It's really short, actually. The redacted name, Kill Carla Walker in Benbrook. Signed, 10100. P.S. It's hard to say, but it's true. So police release this letter to the media in hopes that finally maybe somebody will come forward. And according to a source that I actually used, and I will also put in my source list, but they pointed out something really interesting. Um, so the code 10100 is actually a police code for a body. However, 10100 is actually also a trucker code for a bathroom break. And we'll get back to that. And also, by this time, there's a podcast that comes out called Gone Cold, and it brings some attention back to this case. And there's also interest in this case by Paul Holes, who does a special on oxygen about the case. So now the case is getting some interest, and people are really wanting to solve it. And with this kind of traction, by 2020, funds are finally provided in order to send the sample of DNA found on Carla's bra strap to a private DNA testing lab, which deals with harder cases, such as this one. 46 years after the murder of Carla Walker, Orthram Labs is finally able to provide a DNA profile of the person who committed such a heinous crime. And it's a person who the police have already interviewed just two months after her murder. In 1974, two months after Carla's murder, police begin questioning people in the area who had the same type of gun that would match the magazine clip found at the scene of Carla's abduction. They bring in 31-year-old truck driver Glenn Samuel McCurley. Now, Glenn states in his interview with police that he did have a gun like the one used in the crime. However, according to him, it had been stolen six weeks prior to Carla's murder. When given a polygraph, Glenn Samuel McCurley passes and is taken off the suspect list. In 2020, the DNA profile from Orthram Labs matches Glenn Samuel McCurley. Investigators go through Glenn's trash to get a DNA match, and they get it. So on September 4, 2020, investigators decide that it is time to talk to the person they were certain killed Carla. Glenn Samuel McCurley was now 77 years old. He had lived in Fort Worth for the past 50 years with his wife Judy, had two children, and attended church regularly. He was also now facing a battle with cancer. At first, when questioned about Carla Walker's murder, Glenn says he was working the evening of her abduction. Police ask for a DNA sample from Glenn, and he agrees. The sample comes back as a match. He is Carla's killer. Glenn does eventually change his story, telling police on the night of February 16, 1974, he had been driving around and drinking in parking lots, one of them being the bowling alley parking lot. Glenn claims that he heard Rodney screaming at Carla while they were in the car, and then he approached the car to try to save her from her abusive boyfriend. 
He opened the car door and pulled Rodney off of Carla, and then the two of them went to his car so that she could calm down. She would give him a hug, and he would give her a kiss, mistaking her act of kindness for something else. Glenn Samuel McCurley, according to sources, did give a full confession. However, his actual confession has not been released. Originally, Glenn would plead not guilty, but he would change his plea to guilty three days after his trial started. Glenn Samuel McCurley was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Carla Walker. It took a total of 46 years, five months, and three days to find Carla's killer and bring him to justice. Glenn Samuel McCurley has never been charged in any other murders. However, investigators say that he is a very strong person of interest in at least three other murders of young women in the 70s and 80s. Becky Martin, from the beginning of this story, her case has never been solved and remains cold to this day. In an article written in August of 2022, Glenn Samuel McCurley admitted that neither his wife nor his children send him letters while he's in prison. I really find it unfortunate that both Leighton and Doris Walker, so Carla's parents, never did find out who killed their daughter. But I'm also happy at the same time that Jim never gave up on his sister and he continued to push and push and push um, the Fort Worth Police Department. And that actually brought the attention that needed to go into this case for it to be solved. And it did take 46 years, but at least the Walker family now can be at peace and know that the man responsible for this crime is sitting behind bars. Even if life isn't going to be very long for Glenn, he looks pretty rough. But let's hope that they can get him on other things if he is responsible. I mean, honestly, with how heinous this crime was and how brazen he was to kidnap her out of that space, a public Think about it. It's a bowling alley. It's a public area. And he tries to beat Rodney over the head with a pistol right there. Oh, that's so frustrating. It could have, you know, it could have gone a different way and somebody could have seen them. And, you know, but I feel like this probably wasn't his only murder. Of course, that's me talking out of um, what I believe to be true. I feel like he probably did have responsibility in some other murders around the area. So I really hope that police are working on those cases and trying to bring some closure to other families who are, you know, in the same boat as the Walkers probably were. Um, I want to thank my good friend Kashi for this suggestion today. And you know what? If you have a story that you want to suggest, please go ahead and send me an email it is this story is nuts at gmail.com and I will respond right away with you know to you and and try to work on some of those cases if you have suggestions. So go ahead and do that. Like I said at the beginning of this show as well. If you want to check out my good friend David Keck's podcast, also true crime. It's called the True Crime Journals. I was a co-host on there. There are a couple episodes that I I come in. And so I would love for you guys to check that out as well if you're not following that 
If you want to talk true crime with me or if you just want to be part of the group, join the Facebook group. It is This Story Is Nuts podcast on Facebook. Thank you so much for tuning into today's show. I look forward to telling you more stories starting next week. Coming into spooky season. Actually, we've been in spooky season for a hot minute, but you know, I want to finish this month off strong because it's my favorite season. It's spooky season. So hopefully come back next week for an all new episode of This Story is Nuts. And until then, stay naughty, my friends. Nuts was written and produced by Missy Reese with music by Logan Reese off of Groovepad.